That our kids will learn to seek God's wisdom as if seeking for precious treasure, which is what we want to do right now. So I want to continue to introduce our summer sermon series on the promises of God. Landon introduced it last week, but I want to sort of continue to introduce it before we just jump right in in the following weeks. We are talking about God is faithful. God is faithful to His promises And that makes a world of difference for our everyday lives and for our eternity. So we're called to stand on God's promises. That is, we are to believe them. We are to embrace them. We are to delight in God's promises. Really, the picture that I have of what it means to delight in the promises of God, I see in a couple of passages in Psalm 119. The psalmist shows us how we should delight in the promises of God. You know Psalm 119, don't you? It's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. It's longer than several New Testament whole books. And it's completely, all of it, about the beauty of God's Word. The psalmist praises God for His Word for 176 verses. And I find it super interesting that one of the titles, one of the descriptions of God's word that the psalmist uses is the word promise. God's word 
is his promise to his people. Do you think about the Bible like that? The Word of God is the promise of God. In other words, the whole Word of God is His promise. All of the promises find their promise in one promise, the promise of redemption and reconciliation that God has promised His people all through history. All of Scripture declares and supports what God has promised to be for His people. And so look at Psalm 119.50. 119 verse 50. The psalmist says this to God. He says, This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. God's promise is to be a comforting companion in our suffering. Where do you run when you are suffering? What gives you comfort? When we face, when we face affliction, we would do well to run to the promises of God's Word. Also notice, the promise of God gives life. His promises have resurrection power in them. Believing God's promises is like taking a blowtorch to our frozen and cold hearts. It gives life. Look at verse 140, Psalm 119, 140. The psalmist says to God, Your promise is well tried. And your servant loves it. (laughs) This is gold. The psalmist says to God, I have worn your promise out. It is well tried. That is, I have believed your promise over and over and over again in various situations of my life, and I have found it to be not only true, but I found it to be precious. I love it. Your promise is well tried, And I didn't find it to be just kind of, hmm, it's there. No, your your promise was tried, and I love it. The psalmist didn't just take God's promise for a short test drive around the corner. No, he drove that thing across the country, and he delights in it. He loves it. Notice how much he delights in the promise of God. Verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night. Why? Why am I awake before everyone else is awake? that I may meditate on your promise. This is what it means to stand on the promises of God. This is what we're urging you to do this summer. We mean to test the promises of God. Try them, exhaust them, believe them, and ultimately find them to be so lovely that you can't help but meditate on them and love them. Ultimately, love the promises of God as an expression of your love for God. After all, they are God's promises to us. Now, it's been estimated that there are over 3,000 promises from God in the Bible. And so what I want to do is take a week, a sermon on each one of the 3,000 promises of God. That will only take about 57 years, so buckle up. I joke, but that would be a pretty epic sermon series. Actually, we're going to take about 8 to 10 of the choicest promises of God's Word this summer and just try to unpack them and urge each other to stand on these promises. Urge each other to believe them with all our hearts. As one of your pastors charged with keeping watch over your soul, my biggest hope and prayer for this short series on the promises of God this summer is that you will develop a greater awareness 
of God's promises, a greater sensitivity to them. As you read the Bible for yourself, for the rest of your life, as you teach the Bible to your family or to a class, to others, as you listen to preaching week in and week out for the rest of your life, I pray you will develop promise antennas, that you will perk up a little bit, that you will, that you will hear it a little bit clearer when God says, I will or I shall do this or that. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, and I resonate deep down in my soul with this. He said, oh, I love God's shalls and wills. There is nothing comparable to them. Let a man say shall, what good is it? I will, says a man, and he never performs. I shall, says he, and he breaks his promise. But it is never so with God's shalls. Spurgeon says, if God says shall, it shall be. And when God says will, it will be. When God says shall, and when God says will, it will and it shall be. Now, by way of introduction to this whole series, I want to make three big points about God's promises and show you a few of my favorite verses that speak about God's promises in general. So I just want to hang these three truths over the rest of this summer as sort of banners as we look at specific promises of God. Here's the first one. Number one, God's promises do not fail. The most important and general thing that I could say about the promises of God. God's promises do not (laughs) fail. Now, this is just a more specific way to say that God is faithful because God could not be faithful if He even broke one of His promises. If any one of His promises failed, we could no longer call Him the faithful God. Turn over to the book of Joshua, chapter 23. Joshua 23. God made a lot of promises to His people in the first five books of the Bible. Many of those promises had to do with the land that He was to give them, that He would fight for them against their enemies. And this is what the book of Joshua is all about. Victory after victory after victory. God shows His people that He keeps His promises. And so, in chapter 23, Joshua is at the end of his life. And here at the end of his life, he addresses the the leaders of Israel, those who were enjoying the inheritance that God had given to them. They were already in the promised land. And he addresses them to remind them of one thing. To remind them of how faithful God has been to them. Look at what he says in Joshua 23, verse 14. 23, 14. He says, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. I'm about to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. And just in case he wasn't clear enough, all have come to pass for you. And if that's not clear enough, not one of them has failed. Notice the absoluteness of this statement that Joshua declares. Not one single word from God has failed. Out of all the things, out of all the good things that God has promised, not one of them was left undone. All have come to pass. Not one of the promises have failed. 
Think about what a promise from God is. A promise is a commitment to do something for or to someone. It's a promise, it's a declaration, a promise is a declaration of a future action. God is going to do something for you, for us in the future. And God has made thousands of promises, both big and small, to His people. And we can say with certainty today that not one of God's promises has been broken. Not a single one. Think of the implications if just one of God's promises did not happen. The consequences would be eternally devastating. It would mean God cannot be trusted to be faithful. It would cause all of His promises to be questionable. Consider this. What causes people to break their promises? I'm assuming you, like me, have broken many promises in your life. All of us have. What causes us to break our promises? What are the obstacles that we face in being faithful to do what we promise to do? Well, let me set up an example. What if I promise to build you a fence next week? I'm going to build you a fence. Think of all of the obstacles that could get in the way of me fulfilling that one promise. What if my desires change? What if something comes up between now and then that I want to do more than build you a fence? What if my desires change? What if, what if, what if I begin building the fence and I start to fear what could happen to me if I continue building this fence? I mean, I could hurt my back. I could nail my thumb to a post. It's just kind of safer to not build this fence. What if I have some sort of weakness in myself that keeps me from building the fence? This is the probably most likely scenario. I could get sick or I could be too tired to build the fence. Or what about outside influences that could keep me from fulfilling that promise, right? Someone could actually tie me up and not let me go. But what about my own ignorance of how to build a fence? Like I could start, I could try, but my complete lack of knowledge might cause me to not fulfill that promise. Or what about resources? What if I don't have the right tools or the right materials to build the fence? All of these things and so many other things could keep me from being faithful to a simple promise that I make. These are the reasons we break our promises. So let's think about God and His promises. What are the potential obstacles that could keep God from fulfilling something that He promised His people He would do? What about desire? What if God no longer wants to keep a promise that He made thousands of years ago? Well, the Bible says God does not change. God is immutable. If God says He's going to do something, nothing can change His desire to do that thing. Nothing. Nothing can come up that would change His desires because He is immutable, the God who does not change. What about fear? Like, What if God thinks it's too risky to fulfill a particular promise He made? God is omniscient. And God is omnipotent, right? Nothing scares God. He knows all things. He controls all things. What about weakness? Can God actually accomplish what He promised? Does He have the power to do it? The Bible says God never grows weary. There's nothing that He cannot do. He is life Himself. He has no weakness or insufficiency that would keep Him from doing what He promised to do. What about outside influences? What about someone tying God up so that He can no longer fulfill His promise? Well, nothing and no one can thwart His plans. He is sovereign. 
What about ignorance? What if God doesn't know how to keep a promise he made? God lacks no knowledge, right? He knows everything, past, present, and future. He is all-wise, comprehensive knowledge of all things. What about lack of resources? What if God doesn't have the right resources to fulfill the promises he's made? God owns the entire universe. He is self-sufficient. He needs nothing. Jesus said all things are subjected to him. He is all-powerful. All things in heaven and on earth are subject to him. And so there's literally, literally no obstacles to God being faithful to his promises. He is faithful because he is God. He is faithful because that's who he is. That's his character. God's promises cannot fail. They will not fail because God is faithful. He does what he promises. When he promises something, anything, he will do it. And so let me hang that over this summer as we look at particular promises. I just want you to believe them because they will not fail. Like, like why, why do we distrust God, almighty, sovereign, holy, infinite God? Like, how dumb is that to look at one of God's promises and say, mm, I think I'm going to do my own thing because I'm not sure if you're going to come through. He's God. He will come through. He will do what he has said he will do. And here's the second truth that I want to hang over these promises we're going to look at this summer, and that is God's promises are precious and very great. God's promises are precious, and they are very great. So turn over to 2 Peter, way toward the end of the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there so you can see this with your own eyes. I want you to notice how the Apostle Peter viewed God's promises. How did an apostle view the, the promises of God? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. How has He done that? By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world, because of sinful desire. Just notice how tenderly and passionately Peter viewed God's promises. He said, God's promises are precious. That is, they are valuable. They're, they're a treasure. They're, they're rich. Is that the way you view God's promises? As a treasure worth seeking for, worth going after? They're, they're valuable. And then he says, notice, they're precious and they're they're." Very great. Not just great, but very great. God has granted, that is, He's given His precious and very great promises to us, and He has done so by His own glory and excellence. And He says God has given us His promises so that we might partake of Him, of His very nature. This is how precious, this is how great the promises of God are. They make us partakers of His very nature. Nature. In other words, God's promises 
are an expression of Himself. We commune with God when we stand on His promises, when we cling to them, when we believe them. And so the promises of God are not flimsy or irrelevant. No, they are God's best for us. God gives us His promises and His Word that we might know Him, that we might know who He is and His glory. And let me just say it clearly. Seek to trust God's promises as an expression of your desire to know and enjoy God better. Seek to trust the promises of God as an expression of your desire to enjoy God. His promises are more valuable than gold and they are sweeter than honey because they reveal Him. They reveal His glory. And that's what makes them precious. That's what makes them very great. They are expression of God's very nature. And so when God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, He's saying something about His glorious character and His commitment to His people. When Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand, He is saying something about His power and His authority. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, He is saying something about His own holiness, His own purity. When Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, He's saying something about the way in which we should live in light of His coming, anticipating His coming. The promises of God help us know God. The promises of God exist so that we might know God and that we might live for His glory. And thus they are precious. They are treasure worth seeking and they are very great. The third and final truth I want to hang over this series is this. God's promises are yes in Jesus. God's promises are yes in Jesus. So turn back with me to 2 Corinthians. Let's turn left. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is my favorite passage about the promises of God. Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is explaining his travel plans and he's explaining his motivations to the church. It seemed like the church was kind of upset with him and so he's he's sort of explaining and justifying his actions. And in verse 17, he says, he's asking if he's talking out of two sides of his mouth. Am I saying yes? Am I saying no sometimes? Am I doing this double talk thing? And Paul says, no, that's not what I'm doing. Paul wasn't trying to deceive them by changing his plans. He was simply trying to sincerely follow God's leading, and he takes this opportunity to exalt the promises of God. So look at verses 18 through 20. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him, that is in Christ, it is always yes. Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So Paul says the gospel he preached was always yes in Jesus because all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's the only reason Paul says we can say amen to God 
Because in Jesus, all God's promises are yes in Him. All God's promises, that is, are fulfilled perfectly in the person and work of Jesus. I love, notice that Paul says, all the promises of God. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is, all God's promises to Israel. All God's promises to the patriarchs, to the kings, to the prophets, all of them ultimately find their yes in Jesus, are true because of Jesus. See, when God was promising to Abraham to make him a great nation in Genesis 12, it was in Jesus that God was planning to ultimately fulfill that promise. When God was promising David to always put a descendant on his throne, It was in Jesus that that promise was going to ultimately be fulfilled. Paul is saying Jesus is the ultimate yes and amen to every single one of God's good and precious promises. The promises are only true and precious and very great because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, God's response to His promises is never no. God's response to His promises is never no in Jesus. It is always yes in Jesus. And so, one of the things this tells us is that it is right to stand on the promises of God. We we stand on the promises when we trust in Jesus to fulfill His promises. In His death, in His resurrection, all of God's promises find their yes They find their amen. And so to rightly stand on these promises, to rightly believe the promises, to rightly take God at His word, we have to trust in Jesus Christ alone. No one believes God's promises who is not trusting in Jesus. That's what Paul is telling us. You cannot trust the promises and not be trusting in Jesus because Jesus is the yes, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And so every one of God's promises, all 3,000 plus of them, is there to remind us to cling to Jesus as our only King. They exist to drive us to the cross and to the resurrection that remind us that Jesus paid it all. He is the yes to all of God's promises. And so as we move through this summer, let's try God's promises. Let's try them out. Let's let's find our souls loving and longing for these precious and great promises that are yes in Jesus. And as we transition to the Lord's Supper now, I want to point you to a particular promise so that we can get started in delighting in the promises of God and standing on them even now. So turn to one more place in Scripture, Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to read Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. And so practice now. Practice your promise antennas. As we read through this, listen for the promise from Jesus. Luke says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, that's with Jesus. And he, Jesus, said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, 
I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so as Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, He promises to not do something for a time. Jesus promises not to eat this Passover and to not drink this cup until the kingdom of God comes. Now, when you make a promise to not do something until a certain time, you are actually making a promise to do something at that time, right? If I say, I'm not going to preach again until next Sunday, I'm making a promise to preach next Sunday. By the way, that would be a promise that I might not be able to fulfill because I'm not omniscient. I don't know the future. I'm not all-powerful. But Jesus is promising something here. He's promising His disciples that He will partake of this supper again with them when the kingdom of God comes, which I understand to mean at His second coming. Jesus is making a promise of something that will happen when He comes, when the kingdom of God comes. He's promising that He will again partake of this supper with His disciples. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper today, here we are in between when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and until He comes, here we are in the middle of that and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. How should we do it? Well, we should do it with the anticipation of the promise being fulfilled by Jesus that one day He will physically, actually partake with us. So Jesus is spiritually present with us now as we partake of these elements. We, we commune with Him as we partake of these elements. But Jesus promised to fully and ultimately eat this supper with us when He comes. On that day when we gather around the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus will feast with us. He will feast with us. In fact, I believe He will lead us in partaking of His body and drinking of His blood as we sit at this table and we enjoy all of His promises finally and fully fulfilled, He promised He would do that. And His promises never fail. And this is one of the sweet and precious and very great promises that find their yes and amen in Him. And so, believe this promise as we partake now. Allow this promise to give you hope amidst all the troubles and suffering and difficulty of this life. Let this promise give you hope that there's coming a better day. There's coming a perfect day. There's coming a day when Jesus will make all things right, when He will sit with His bride and we will enjoy His company in full without any barrier of sin and shame. And so as we partake, as we receive this bread, as we receive this cup, we, we, we look forward to that day when we will actually receive these elements from the nail-scarred hands of our Savior. Now let me just be real clear 
The Lord's Supper is only for believers. The Lord's Supper is only for those who are trusting in Jesus alone. If you are not trusting in Jesus, if you're not seeking to follow Him and do what He says, please do not partake of these elements. For your own soul's sake, do not partake of the bread or of the cup, but rather utilize this time to pray, repent of your sin, and trust in Jesus for your salvation. But if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are delighting in His promises of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life, Jesus invites you, He invites me to partake with faith in Him in order to proclaim His death until He comes. And so we're going to take a moment of silence. This real awkward moment of silence where we're just going to embrace Jesus, ask Jesus to show you your sin, ask Him to help you give you repentance of your sin and embrace Him, embrace His promises, trust in Him afresh this morning as you evaluate yourself. And after that moment of self-examination, we're going to pray and partake of the elements together. And so let's do business with our God. Oh, great God, we are bankrupt without you. We are desperate people in need of your grace for everything good in our lives. Father, forgive us for our idolatry. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us all the ways that we cast shame upon ourselves and upon you. Forgive us for dragging your name through the mud and for living as if you don't exist and for acting like this world is our home. God, forgive us and help us to enjoy the promise of forgiveness. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe that promise now that you will forgive us of all unrighteousness in Jesus. We thank you for your promises of restoration of fellowship with you that all our sins will be washed away and that we can relate to you in the righteousness of Christ. So we stand with that righteousness covering us. We thank you for your precious and very great promises that you've granted to us by your divine power and for your glory. And we pray that you would help us to believe you, to trust you, to live our lives like we actually believe your promises are true. We thank you that your promises are greater than anything this world promises to us. God, as we partake of these elements now, would you help us to proclaim afresh, to believe afresh that Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead,
And in that we have life, and all of your promises are yes and amen in that. We bless you, we praise you, give us unity as we proclaim the death of Christ now. And I pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're going to partake with us, go ahead and grab the elements in the pew rack in front of you. If you remove the top thin layer, it reveals the bread. The bread symbolizes the body of Jesus that was broken for us. This bread represents the body of Jesus that was torn and beaten, pierced for our sins. Jesus, it says, He took bread, and when He'd given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your willingness to die in our place for our sins. And we declare our faith in you. We want to live our lives pleasing to you. So help us do that, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. If you remove the thicker foil layer, it reveals the cup. This cup represents the blood of Jesus that was willingly poured out for our sins. Jesus likewise took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus will say, Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your powerful and precious blood. We thank you that your blood is powerful enough to cleanse us from all our many sins. We give you praise for your precious blood. We declare our faith and our joy in you and what you have done. Help us to believe your promises. We pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing about God's promises.